How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 228. Thank, thank you, Zeke, for waiting for my five-hour... It's okay. You didn't wait five hours, but it was a... <laughs> it was a long... It was a long... It's, it's all right. Encode. You know, Export. There's been, a, there's been a lot of waiting today, hasn't there? There has. There has. I mean... We'll get into it, but there were some big HBO finishes this week. We had to wait all day. We did to watch, but uh, exciting times. Did they live up to the hype? That'll oh, be the big question. That is the big question. You know what's cool? What is in, cool? in the last week, Zeke, I finally bit the bullet. I got Letterboxd patron. Or I became a member, a patron member, I should say. So uh, it's it's the uh, third and final tier of Letterboxd been a pro member for a while now and uh i just realized my microphone is not even facing anywhere near me maybe, maybe now we're gonna get more pop pop despite the pop filter but uh yeah so now i've got custom posters Zeke, on letterboxd there you go so fun so fun love it mixing it up keeping it <laughs> mixing <fresh>. it up <laughs> exactly. well i wonder if it gives you access to more trivia but speaking of trivia jake what is trivia from the film of the week the 1933 film King Kong. I don't think it does, but that that's okay. Paint for other things, Zeke. Uh, no, trivia for King Kong, 1933, obviously the original. Um, and it is a classic. And uh, I know I know you're very familiar with this fact, Zeke, the fact that it is the first ever feature-length score for an American talkie at the time. Mm-hmm. But that's not my fact. That's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus on Max Steiner, the legendary composer, who also did last week's film. We talked about Casablanca. And also, last year's 30s pick for the countdown of the decades, Gone with the Wind. So he's a legend of this time period. So, uh, did it all. Kudos to Max. He did it all. Exactly right. Zeke. Yes. What's your fun? Or were you, you going to say something? No. I was going to make another double joke. that like um, He could have had it all, but he already did have it all. <laughs> oh, very good. Zeke, what's your mm. fun fact? Well, despite the fact that this film was... In the midst of the Great Depression, yes, it actually grossed ninety thousand dollars in its opening weekend, Woo! which may not seem, in the grand scheme of things, all that big, but that was the biggest opening at the time. Yes, and adjusting for inflation, that that's a hell of a lot of cheddar. Yes, must be so, well over a million, well over a million. Well, millions and billions. Mil- been- billions. Uh, do a good old Trump. Billions and billions yeah. and billions and billions. We're talking about beast capitalism <laughs> and the destruction of both. <laughs> this week on the show. Uh, now, Zeke. Yeah. We've talked a little about this leading up to, um, you know, the end of the countdown. The poster behind you, 1,100 films mm. you must watch at least once in your lifetime. Before before we go any further, do, is the film on the poster? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> We've had some we had some questionable ones in the past, but King Kong is certainly on there uh, for very good reason. We'll get into it soon, but I think we've talked a lot about retiring this little segment, the poster. And I think now that we're sort of wrapping up our countdown through the decades, we're going back to more contemporary stuff. Mm. I think mean, I think now's a good time to. We're saying goodbye to it. We are saying goodbye to it, um, which is sad in its own right, but. It's been around since, like, episode, what, like, 85 or something like that? No, well, I think because we, we started doing the whole quota film from 1982 on episode 82. Yes. And we did that, I think, through to, like, I guess it would have been, like, the 120s is when we dropped that. And I think that's when we moved to the trivia fact poster combo, so to speak. There you go. Um, I can't remember who pitched the poster. 
I mean, you pitched the trivia from yeah. memory. It could be wrong. It's, it's okay. I think it's because you got the poster. Well, that's looking. what I'm thinking. I'm looking at it right now. It's behind your head. Yes. <laughs> so you're not looking at it all the time. Nah. I am. Um, so I'm guessing it was my idea because of the poster. But the more I think about it, not only because most of the, not most, but a lot of the films we do aren't even on the poster because mm. they're too contemporary. They're more recent than 2018. But I also don't like starting the conversation with this very binary approach to should it be on the poster or shouldn't it? Because it almost feels like unfair, especially for films that we don't think should we're, be on the poster, but we have positive things to say. Whereas, about. you know, you take our end of year awards, our Golden Chalk Top in mm. particular, that's almost like our Cinema Sideshow Hall of Fame. Yes. We're cultivating. Because now we've had, what, four of yes. those. So there are four films that we wholeheartedly and have said would be in our pantheon of, mm. of our Hall of Fame. Um, I'm sure we'll come up with some form of. Yeah. Some, uh, some terminology. Show, I don't know. It can't be a walk of fame because you don't walk <laughs> on a podcast. So, um, we'll have to physically build a place to walk through. Yeah. I mean, it's the way to do it. But I, I think you're right. And those are more nuanced discussions anyway of both the positives and the negatives of, of the pe- previous year in film that we've had on the yeah. show. So I think it's fair. So I think we we bed uh, farewell to the 1100 Films poster. It served us well. And I think King Kong's a nice one to end it on. There you go. Yeah. Well, then it's time for us to move into a section that's not going anywhere. Certainly not. Soon. Jake, what <laughs> Be do you Be a called? bold move. <laughs> this whole week was about bold moves, uh, especially the ones that didn't pay off. Jake, oh. what did you catch in the last week? Well, I, not much. I will say, much like the retirement of our segment, much like this being the final segment of our countdown through the decades for the year, We've also seen the end of a couple of really big HBO shows, yeah. Um, both of which I caught today. Um, so I'll, I'll talk a little about Barry first, since you haven't seen Barry. Um, the finale was today. It actually aired after Succession, but I watched it first. And I was quite happy with it. I think I kind of made a mistake by binging like 90% of the show and then just the last couple of weeks just watching it as it came out, especially because they are such bite-sized chunks they're 30 minute mm-hmm. episodes so it was it was very much a 30 minute segment of my week that was usually dominated by succession discussion so i it kind of felt bad to me in that sense of it, it kind of fell along the wayside mm. and especially today like not a lot of people are talking about barry in comparison to the succession finale we'll get into that um so i feel bad from that standpoint but i did enjoy the finale i did enjoy kind of its dual-layered final stamp on you know, what it means to be an anti-hero, both to the characters in the story as well as us, the audience, watching the story. Because we've got a whole, you know, pantheon of anti-hero TV characters from the last couple of decades. And, you know, I think, obviously, we talk about Walter White and Bojack Horseman to an extent, and I think Bojack's a very comparable thing here because it, that show also ended with, like, what's the final impression we have of Bojack? Like, what's yeah. the final say about this character and, like, is he redeemable? Is he not? How do you redeem him? If he's not redeemable, what what do you say or do to him in that regard? There's a lot of the same questions for Barry, the character, and I think they they kind of gave him the least ceremonious fate of mm. any of the characters I just mentioned. Um, like Saul Goodman will be another one for this Watch Better Call Saul, but on the same token, it also went much deeper in terms of like its meta narrative for the impact that Barry has on the characters around him. And I think it's actually quite a bittersweet ending. The final five minutes is hilarious. 
you're 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 bowling laughing the whole time but it mm. i think it does have implications for the characters that are involved in that final scene yeah and sort of the impact that that Barry has on those two characters in particular and and what i think it means for their relationship going forward which i think is not very good um so i i think it's a very nuanced finale in that sense and i definitely recommend it people should watch Barry um it's a great time <laughs> Now, of course, the other one, Succession, we've both seen this finale. Yes. Now, we're not going to spoil it. We're not going to spoil it yet. Maybe next week we'll get into it. But, general, oh, Zeke, we'll start with you. What was your final takeaway from the final episode of Succession? Uh, deflated. Hmm. Deflated. Um, not like, so it's really interesting. We were talking before the show started about has... Um, there aren't many shows I've watched where I've been left completely satisfied by the ending. Now, right. that doesn't mean the ending was bad inherently. It just means that I'm either wanting more or I don't feel like all my answers, all the questions were answered. I, sure. I felt um, the BoJack ending was fine, but that took a long time for me to sort of accept that I really liked that ending okay. or at least liked it well enough. Yeah. Um, it's a complete tonal... It's almost, but with BoJack, it's because when you look back on it, it's such a wild ride that's just building and building mm. and building. The yep. ending almost really doesn't leave. There's nothing left to be said, which right. means it's almost like the end of a big screaming match that you're just left with that silence. Mm. Um, and I think that that's something that I didn't enjoy in the moment, um, but have come to kind of enjoy it a little bit more. Um, I think to all of the sitcoms that I really like, how often they've got very anticlimactic or, or endings that people strongly dislike. Mm. Um, and then there's something like community, which I thought had a really strong ending, although it, you know, that might not be the ending ending. We're going to get obviously this epilogue film, which is awesome, but I feel like with succession, it was, we were almost baited into a driving question. Um, and I was left feeling like that ending was fair and just, mm. but I'm left feeling empty right. by watching it, which is so interesting. And, and I don't think it detracts from the show. Mm. I think the show is immaculate. I think the last season is really, really strong. Um, has some of the best ep- episodes of television we've seen in the last 10 years, but... I think, uh, yeah, it was one of those episodes where the reality hammer came crashing down and <laughs> we just walked away going, well, uh, that's probably how that would actually go. Mm, I think it's funny for me because I, I was sort of prepared for an ending that was at least somewhat um, ambiguous and that didn't perfectly tie everything into a knot. I think we were kind of given signs of that from like, I know Sarah Snook, for example, was very caught off guard by the ending um, in terms of... I don't think she actually knew it was the ending until the table read of that last episode. Mm. Uh, and I, I think there were just hints here and there that it was going to be a bit of a... Uh, not a shocking ending. It definitely is a absolute roller coaster. <laughs> and to your point with her driving question, I think this is the... I can easily say this is the most excited I've ever been for any finale ever. Yeah. And with that in mind, I'm not talking about shows that I binge. Obviously, Breaking Bad, I didn't watch as it came out. 
So it was not quite the same excitement for the finale because I was binging it the whole time. And the same for BoJack, where they dropped eight episodes in one go. And even Better Call Saul, which I did watch live, but that's uh, that show's narrative sort of crescendo happens way earlier than you expect. In a lot of ways, the show's like Ozymandias moment is like seven episodes out from the finale. And the rest of the show is just sort of slowly mm. ticking boxes and tying bows to the point where I was actually getting more and more satisfied and less and less hungry for more information as the show concluded, as opposed to Succession, which hinges on that driving question you mentioned earlier, and specifically, who's going to be the successor? Who's the And successor? takes it to the final possible minute of the final episode. Yeah. So 90-minute episode, too. A huge episode, and it's... Oh, it, yeah, I... I loved it, but completely understand where you're coming from in terms of I feel like I need to process a little bit. I can see it being quite divisive Mm. in a sense. And I ultimately, it was one of those things where I had to reevaluate. I I still do. I have to reevaluate what the show truly means now because I had plenty of ideas of what the show was and what it's about and who it's about. Mm. And now that it's over, I feel like a lot of that sort of tipped on its head and I'm not like completely gobsmacked by that but it's something I need to process and now and now re-watching older episodes with the context of where it all sort of leads and to your point th- there's plenty of story that could be had after this episode they could yeah. easily do another season or a film to sort of wrap up additional loose ends but Ooh, I'd take a succession film <laughs> but so, I mean we kind of just got one didn't we yeah <laughs> feature late film yeah um but no, I'm I'm ultimately very I'm I'm happy that it wasn't like a neat bow satisfactory ending. Yeah. I'm glad that there was still a lot of nuance to it, that each character has a really unique conclusion to their arc. Um But yeah, but I also see and and we're not gonna go into spoilers, but we we've talked a little about our spoilery thoughts before we started recording and you made some really interesting points about just like character decisions in the moment. And like I said, it's a roller coaster ride. So character motivations are just changing and flowing and 180 like every 10 minutes. And for the most, I find a lot of it to be very natural and in- intriguing. Mm. But I don't think you're wrong when you say a few of them are very abrupt and, and need yeah. a bit more time to process, perhaps. Yeah. To put it nicely. <laughs> I think it's really that's a really good way of looking at it. I think. For a finale point, we're not saying this was a bad finale, but... I thought it was immaculate. Yeah. But I also understand where the criticism or the divisiveness may come from. Yeah. that That's kind of where I stand with It'll it. It'll be interesting to see how the reception goes in the next week. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm curious. I know that IMDb scores, it was, I think when I last checked, it was 9.7. So not terrible. Very good. It might climb down to, like, climb down. It might, like, slip down to 9.5. Um... So pretty pretty satisfactory, but I've I've already seen quite a few comments of people just sort of surprised and maybe not pleasantly surprised, so to speak. But I I think look now now that we sort of have that big picture of how the whole story played out, I still think it is just immaculate um, writing and performances and direction and storytelling. I think the show's just, I mean, it's one of the greatest shows of this modern era. I would say so. I think that's a very fair. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Like, I don't even think there's a debate. I think it has one of the best episodes of the last ten years, mm. maybe the last twenty years, probably. Um, 
it flows. It has a great story. You know, performances from actors that, for most part, we don't we haven't seen these actors in a lot of things. Mm. Um, well, I'm excited for their careers. Like uh, Kieran Collins already getting roles in other places, and Sarah Snooks in a, I think a Netflix horror film that comes out later this month. Um, I think Jeremy Strong's doing um, more stage stuff later this year. Mm. So like they're all they're all kicking around doing all sorts of interesting things, which I'm really excited about. I hope it doesn't have the Breaking Bad effect where most of them sort of just get pigeonholed now, not in those roles, but just sort of find themselves unable to like progress career wise. Yeah, like, even Brian Cranston has had some weird decisions. A lot of great stuff, you know. I mean, mm. Trumbo he was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, um, they took down what Ivan the the one and only Ivan or. Whatever or it's called on Disney oh, he's Plus. He's got Your it's, Honor. Yeah, no, and that that's I hear it's a absolutely fantastic show. In fact, that's probably the next one I need to start watching. So there you go. <laughs> I'm on billions. I've moved from one billion a show to another. So you have, yeah. Um, yeah. Have you caught anything else, or is that all you've? That's kind of that's it for pretty me. Pretty much me too. So <laughs> well, I w- I will pose you this question. Yeah. Because like I said, I've been thinking a lot about that excitement, like the fact that this is, I've never been more excited and anxious to watch the finale of a show before. And i got to tell you today, man, I was so anxious about spoilers. Like, I had my phone on airplane mode all day. <laughs> I was well, worried. in a lot of those chats. I am, I am. But the other thing as well is, so Sportsbet did a thing where you could bet on, like, who's going to become the CEO, so who says the last line. Now, I... I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna say it. I didn't. I failed on every bet. <laughs> I got no money back. But I realized. I'm like, oh my god. What if Sportsbet notifies me and tells me the re- the results of the <laughs> the, the so bet? That's true, actually. <laughs> and apparently, those bets were called at eight fifty nine before the show even aired. So, so they must have had insider knowledge over at Sportsbet. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Isn't that wild? I know. I thought it'd be like a live thing where you could like um, bail out. <laughs> Halfway or cash out rather, um, but I would, dude. I was so anxious about spoilers, and I was, I was gonna ask: Are there any examples you can think of of either a show or a movie or whatever it may be, a sequel, where you were just so anxious about being spoiled? It because the first one that comes to me, and our famous Iron Man spoiler for Avengers Endgame. Oh my god! Where you yelled at a teenager. <laughs> And that, the movie that, theater. and that had nothing to do with the fact that I cared about yes, it. Yes, exactly. It was because you cared about it and the we, girl I was sort of hanging out with yeah. at the time. Because <laughs> we had spent all day... We waiting. had committed to like this 11pm screening of a three-hour movie. And we were at uni before, weren't we? We definitely had Nando's that night. I feel like it turned into... I feel like it was a long period. Maybe I had work... And then it was just a long day. It was just a long day. It was a long day, and you're going to end cap with this movie. And I was like, like you said, it wasn't because you were so upset about having it been spoiled. No. It was just like the context and the commitment to having seen that film yeah. and to have it spoiled literally outside the cinema door, oh, like a Simpsons gag. It was <laughs> haunts me to this day. Oh. Um, I can't think of any others. I think for the most part, I was. When I was in high school, I had the finger on the pulse. I was always watching the latest episodes of things. Yes. I think... Was there ever a Game of Thrones thing where you had it spoiled or you were, you were trying to avoid it? I knew of the Red Wedding because I was a little late to the Game of Thrones party. Right. And the, break, uh, and the Walking Dead and Breaking Bad. But Breaking Bad, yeah, people didn't really talk about 
Breaking Bad a lot at school. It was mostly right. Walking Dead and Game of Thrones. And I knew Red Wedding was coming. I think I right. I was a season behind where it was up to. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know what it meant by Red Wedding. Right. Well, that, um, that's the same as me as, as someone I still haven't watched Game of Thrones. I know of the Red Wedding. I don't know what happens exactly. But I, I know it's like a huge, huge event <laughs> in television. Yeah. yeah. So, um, no, I've been, I've been pretty safe for the most part. I'm trying to think of any. No. Um, I actually get a lot of... Um, I'm obviously like a massive wrestling fan, WWE. Yes. I have the same problem. So it's like last night they had a like a pay-per-view and they were crowning a new champion and I knew the stupid went on Facebook and I knew yeah. I shouldn't have and <laughs> found out screenshot pops up and I go, oh, great. So there goes like yes. the, the fun, who is it? Um, so, but thankfully there was a lot of other major things that happened that I managed to avoid on that show. So that's and, good. <laughs> I know I'm such a nerd loving WWE, but um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's where I get most of my spoilers. Okay. So whenever there's like a pay-per-view, I like don't go on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, fair enough. And I'll, and I'll, most of the time I won't even, I'm, I'll watch the matches I want to watch. Just skip through the ones I don't want to watch. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, that's fair enough. Actually, you know what? A recent example for me, and this is a very odd one. They recently had a PlayStation showcase, which I was very excited for because it was like mm. the first one they'd done in nearly two years. The PlayStation have been historically quiet in terms of like what's actually coming to the, mm. the platform and what games have been actively developed on. And I'm pretty aware of all the first-party studios and everything. And that was something where I I got up. I knew it was going to play at 4 a.m. And I was like, well, I'm not... I'm, in high school, I might have stayed up to watch it. Yeah. I'm really glad I didn't. It was a pretty lack, lackluster event in all honesty. And you're right, you could just go and watch the individual trailers of things you're interested in. But I got up, like, what, at 8 that morning, and my instinct was to, like, cover my phone as I navigated YouTube to then watch the live stream from the start. I wanted to, like, watch it from start to finish. Mm. And after four minutes, I was like, what am I doing? Let me just go on the Sony website and just see what the banner pages. I don't... And I don't miss... Yeah, I can. I see. That's so funny because it's the same thing with like live footy. Yeah, I, when the footy's on, I rarely miss like a Freo game. Yeah, like live. But there have been cases where it's like, oh, I'm busy. I'll have to watch it on delay. Yes. So then it's like no spoilers. Turn off the footy tipping chat. Turn off all of that. Like, <laughs> I because back in the day we used to watch Freo games on delay. Yeah. Because of the just the way the telebroadcast works. So. But the best part was because there was no major internet spoilers and stuff like you, or you didn't have it on your phone, you mm. wouldn't know the results until you watched the game. Yeah. But now it's like so hard to keep yourself away from those results. Um, so uh, I think it happened with the Derby this year. I couldn't watch. Oh, an hour. interesting. I had to I start an hour later because I was watching it with a group and the people didn't show up. So I went, no phones are allowed. We're watching this game as if it's live. Yeah. Locking ourselves from the outside the world. Yeah. But now I tune into every game because Free is winning again. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, they've been on a roll, actually. Oh, so good. And so I, good. I always see it by just like scrolling my phone and then they post and they're all celebratory. I was like, wow, Free is actually. Yeah. It's hard because it's like normally, like, we're recording quite late today. This is like one yes. of our later episodes. So. Normally, I'll try and watch... Like, I've watched, like, three movies, but I've only watched about half to three quarters. So i got to finish them off before oh, I, I see. watch them. Yep. But they get to that... 
I've got to start introducing a rule, like a 15-minute rule. Like, if I'm not invested in the first 15, I'll just move on to the next thing sometimes. Uh, but it, okay. I know some people do that, but I try and give films their chance. But sometimes I'm like, oh, I've just sat here for an hour and I'm not really invested. <laughs> there are two films off the top of my head, and it, and one of them was really easy to remember because it includes King Kong 1933. Okay. But there are two films off the top of my head where I actually struggled to get past the first 10, 15 minutes. Now, I'll explain why we're King Kong later, but the other one is actually Ryan Johnson's Brick from 2005. It's one of his very earliest films. It might be his first mm. film, actually. Very, very indie, kind of like high school noir, sort of self-referential, or uh, self... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Self-aware. Self-aware yeah. high school neo-noir drama mystery story. It makes sense. He's doing lots of mysteries now. Um, I'm going to be honest. I've never watched that film in its entirety. I've, always, I've seen that the first half an hour a few times. And I don't know what it is. To be fair, that was many years ago, the last attempt. So that's something I might try and watch. So that that's an interesting strategy. You give it 10, 15 minutes. If it doesn't hook you, then there you go. That's why I like the cinema. You don't have as much choice. Yeah. Unless it's, uh, you know. <laughs> it's very true. Unless it's a net. <laughs> then you have all the choice in the world. You can leave that cinema. Oh, dig. Is, Damn. I'm here for it. I agree. <laughs> Oh, I agree with you. Well, Jake, mm. do you have any career updates you'd like to chime in? Oh, I got, I got a few little things. I actually want you to go first. Oh, you got, you got an exciting one, actually. I do, I do. Um, obviously, being a media teacher, not just a sweet podcast host. <laughs> um, no, obviously, um, I would only talk about this if it was public. Sure, obviously. Um, the school I work at, we've been sort of working really hard since I started working there to get a school-run podcast off the ground. Mm. This has led to basically us. I mean, I've sent you pictures of sort of the the module, like all of the renovations and stuff mm. like that. And obviously, we've had to add in soundproofing. From basically, I've had to create, um, you know, with obviously help with the people in our department. Uh, like our own podcast studio. And that's been a really fun kind of project. Um, And, you know, there's a whole bunch of paperwork that goes involved. But we were, last week, we recorded our first episode with a video component. Yes, very nice. Sat down and uh, edited basically what my year 11 general media kids put together, which was two cameras and this, obviously, this recording on this this brand new equipment, which was so much fun to use. Mm. God, they're lucky. Um, but <laughs> Compared to what we had in high school? Yeah, absolutely. And, oh, man, I would if I had had that in high school, I was obsessed with podcasts long before doing them. Mm. I used to love the Rooster Teeth podcast and used to listen to that in high school, like, religiously. So um, if podcasting was off at my school, psh, that would have been me for the next two years. I would yeah. have spent year 11 and 12 just making podcasts. But um, it ends up... It, we did our first episode with our principal um, on kindness, which was um, a really cool experience. And yeah, I just it released today on dropped on Spotify today, and oh, it's great nice. to end on YouTube. And it's great to see so many people of that school community listening. Obviously, being on Spotify, anyone can access it. This is a student-run podcast. I first thing I've ever executively produced, so oh, there it's pretty you go. exciting. Um, yeah, I guess technically we're we're producers on this, according to IMDb. Mm. Yes, we can be executive producers. Why not? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, but it's cool. It's cool to sort of, and it's one of those things I didn't have any hands in. 
all of my kids in that class basically took a role okay, mm. or assigned them roles. So two hosts, a pro- like a, a producer. So yep. someone who's obviously doing basically what you're doing right now, making sure all the levels are on point. Mm. Um, and two cameramen. So it ends up being, you know, we're lucky we only got five person class. So it worked really well within the space. The episode went off without a hitch. Very um, nice. You know, room to improve, but hey, it's a pilot episode, you know. We've uh, we've had our own pilot episodes once upon a time, so... Um, <laughs> well, that's it. As you go, you, you are constantly improving. But really cool. Hopefully, there'll be more um, things to talk about in the, the year, but it's really nice to have that space pretty much fully operational. Able Kids are able to go in there and make their own podcasts and do what they will with them and, you know, more marketing and promotion for the school. So, say lovey. Beautiful. Is it is it better than than this little studio that we have? Um, it's got more soundproofing. I'll give you that. It's true, but this is acoustically <laughs> a pretty solid. Definitely, the equipment's better. <laughs> um, Not much though. I'll admit <laughs> these, these aren't are, very expensive mics that we use. These are pretty. Uh, they've done us well. They have done. We us think about well. the cost over time. It's, uh, That's def- true. Like I mean, uh, these mics collectively across the episodes we've recorded. Yeah. I reckon less than a dollar per episode. Yeah. If you sort of evaluate it. So they've definitely got their use. Um, I really like this space. This has ended up being... We've had a few. We've we've, we've, we've bounced of, around a lot, yes. Um, the old time, Murdoch they, Studio. Oh, I did like the Murdoch Studio. We had, your, we had your place. Yeah, we did. And then we one time we did it in the TV studio at Murdoch. One episode ever we did. Did we really? Yeah. Wow. And I'm afraid I'm afraid to we... say which episode it is because you might be able to hear the, the sound quality difference. <laughs> I think I'm it was a COVID waiting. episode. I'm still waiting. Skin of Blister, that'll be the first Cinema Side Show live show. There you, <laughs> there you go. We'll review the whole the whole film. We just do it about a fringe. <laughs> we just do a fringe show. Cinema That's not a bad idea, actually, yeah. Have a look in to see if we could we just charge like sell 10 out bucks a sell ticket. out like twelve seats. Let's do it. <laughs> I reckon people would go. It'd be we'd have to keep it to like a tight hour. Yeah, like it would have to be like we have to stick within. Well, we need like a roaming mic, the third yeah. roaming mic to well, to constantly go to audience members. That'd be and, cool. Yeah, yeah. We just get like Blake to walk around with the mic. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give it to Stephen, but he'll probably just talk into it himself yeah, just the whole time. Himself. <laughs> We'd literally just be our friends. Uh, all of uh, our friends coming to Fridge together. You know what? I reckon they wouldn't say if we picked a if we picked an episode and like we picked a film that like we did Twilight. Yes, <laughs> you know, which I talked about last week. Go and go and listen to my thoughts yeah. last week. Cinema Sideshow vampires suck. Twilight. Oh no, <laughs> the twenty ten classic vampires suck. Oh. <laughs> what about you, Jake? Um, yeah. So I I honestly. I'm losing my days, Zig. I don't know if... We went picture lock recently on Skin and Blister. I don't know if that's something I mentioned on the podcast yet. I might have already mentioned it two more two times in addition today, but we are picture lock. Um, Very got a, Got another update on the soundtrack today. It's sounding mint as. And uh, I've also broke down all the potential VFX shots. So I can say with absolute certainty there are 131 cuts in the film. Or I'll say shots. There mm. are invisible cuts in there. Um, but there are 64 of those shots which need VFX Um, and a lot of them's like I want to change the clock in the corner of this frame from like 7.35 to 7.34 or tiny little things like that 
I'd say there's about maybe five shots that we like desperately need to do to tell the story. Mm. Otherwise, it, we, there's always one moment in the rough cut everyone laughs at. And it's like, ah, it's a VFX shot. <laughs> that's not what it's going to look like. Um, so that's happening, I suppose. Mm. We found a colorist, which actually I might have mentioned that last week as well. But I this, think you did. This colorist may not be able to work on the film until August, so I kind of need to figure out if we're going to need to do it sooner. Or if the stars are actually going to align with my VFX work and then the sound team doing their thing. So it might actually line up with August pretty well. So we'll see. But that that's chipping along. But I'm glad that at least one of us has a career update where people can actually actively go and listen to it. Yeah. Or watch I mean, it. It's available on uh, Spotify podcast, Beyond the Bell. So if you want to... <laughs> that's excellent. And, yeah, I love podcast that. Podcast. Beyond the Bell. bell. So, that's brilliant. Well done. Um, yeah. So... Was that? Shout what, out, did you come up with the to name? My kids, very proud of you. What's um? No, I didn't actually. Well, okay. we had a couple of names we threw to the school. Yeah. Um, and the kids actually designed the logo. So mm, very good. This was not actually the kids that produced the show. It was a year seven student that did really well, which is awesome to see. It's like School of Rock. Like everyone has to have at least one role. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was. Yeah, this is my Jack Black moment. <laughs> I'm happy for that. I'm I'm here for it. But yeah, very proud. Uh, so it's my rare shout out to my kids. There you the go. So now let, sorry, keep it up. Keep it up. There you go. Now let me think of a Jack Black reference here to tie this into our film of the week. Cause we're not doing the Jack Black version of King Kong. That was 2005. That's very clever. Thank you. We're doing 1933s. Uh, see now, now I need to say something You've thrown to, it throw, off. Yeah. to throw it back to you. We're doing, we're doing Jack a, Black, yeah. 2005 version, but Jake, <laughs> what are we watching then? <laughs> Thank you. This week in the show, Zeke, we're watching 1933's King Kong. King Kong is coming. A monster, all-powerful, beating down all weapons, smashing all barriers. You won't believe your eyes. Here he comes. Listen. <laughs> Striking out of the dense jungle, King Kong comes to claim his human sacrifice. The first white girl he has ever seen. She looks like a tiny doll in his huge, hairy paws he tramples toward his cave. Listen to her shrieks. Hear the din, the confusion of pursuit as they trail him into the depths of mystery. film crew visits a mysterious island for a shoot, they discover a giant prehistoric ape living there. Mayhem ensues when the gorilla attempts to possess a woman from said crew. What a what a sexist ape 
Doctor, I think he's just got an affinity for blonde women. Mm. That's true. Um, hey, a lot of us do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Jake. Yes. I think you have to take the lead with this one because okay. it's your first time watching the 1933 film King Kong. It is. What were your first thoughts? Yeah, so like I alluded to earlier, I actually did attempt to watch this film many years ago. I think I would have obviously had just seen the 2005 one, Peter mm. Jackson's film, which I guess it's fair to say we both sort of grew up with. Yeah, I've never seen it. You've never seen it? No. Wow. Okay, that's very interesting. Okay. Okay, this is going to make a really interesting conversation. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm more than happy to say that I sort of grew up with that. I mean, I would have been, I guess, eight. Because I think it came out in Christmas. So I would have been about eight when I saw that. So I'm guessing maybe a couple of years later, 10, 11 years old, I actually, I think I rent the original King Kong from the theater. Even at that age, I had that interest in, you know, mm. delving into earlier cinema and... and watching the original versus the remake and, and, you know, not trying not to watch sequels before the originals. And I had that affinity and that mindset. But that being said, I got 10 minutes in, I just struggled. And I, I'm not afraid to admit mm. that. I was a young kid and obviously I was attracted by the, you know, I couldn't resist the, the visuals of the 2005 version, which was obviously a lot more colorful and, and very CGI heavy. And I, I rewatched a lot of that film yesterday as part of, you know, to join in yeah. this conversation. And I think a lot of it holds up shockingly well much like a lot of lord of the rings vfx hold up shockingly well um yeah so now that you're right this is the first time i was able to sit down and watch it from start to finish and had to go to the ends of the earth to actually find a proper 100 minute version of this film this is a condensed version <laughs> there's lots of condensed versions out there and i think a lot of them maybe at like tv broadcasts where they they cut the violence because of the haze code and things like that so i think there's a lot of history behind that even the famous like spider pit was is is a cut scene it's it's very much impossible to find the you can watch the peter jackson recreation of that scene uh which is excellent it's meant to be like an authentic 1933 scene as if it was like lost archival footage they found that's quite interesting but yeah as my first full uh full watch through i was able to incredibly appreciate the technical marvel that this film is Mm. i mean I mean, we talk, we obviously talked about Casablanca last week, and in the past we talked about Citizen Kane and, uh, you know, the third... Well, actually, we've never done an episode on The Third Man, but I think The Third Man's a good comparison. Like, all of these films, even Double Indemnity, that have all mm. sorts of great qualities and are classics for very specific reasons, but in terms of just, like, technical, visual spectacle and, and just effects, I was completely blown away by this one. This one is 90 years old. It'll be in the public domain in less than five years. Like, that's crazy to think about. And they're doing all sorts of crazy marriages between live-action footage and stock-motion animation, the way they use these big matte displays, and they're comping uh, different aspects of the frame onto each other. And I was just like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is so impressive for the time. Mm. And I still think a lot of it even holds up today, which is fascinating. That said, there's a lot of things that don't hold up. <laughs> we can get into those as well. Uh, but that was my big takeaway. Was just, I was just completely blown away by the, the spectacle of it. And no wonder people were so impressed in 1933. No wonder so many people were, were shocked and ran out of the theatre in fear. You know, it's, it's yeah. an impressive feat. It's, um, I think you've, you've sort of hit the nail on the head there. I think that walking away from this film on my first viewing, it yep. was a very similar consensus that... Wow, that's really impressive. The animation, like the the 
the levels of detail and and consideration that they mm. have the, the the amazing tricks they're doing with film and integrating animation yes and then the story comes around <laughs> followed by the acting followed by the writing and you sit there and it's so funny because you have to put yourself back in that mindset that sound only came to cinema six years earlier mm. and this is the first film one of the first films that's it, you know a full like orchestral score and a talkie it's yes. a full talkie and what we're watching is it's kind of that that part in singing in the rain that that we've got actors that aren't quite ready to be screen actors mm. you know we're, we're looking at, at at Casablanca which is really one of those um, flag bearers for the evolution of the screen actor. I think that's why the forties are held in such high regard is right. We had a generation coming through and I talked about this with, with Orson Welles, these, these um, filmmakers were coming into the industry, ready to write scripts and make movies about talking and, and yep. acting um, that weren't so pantomimed and overexpressive and because that was the evolution that had to occur over mm. that, that time. Um, and obviously the stories they were telling were were grittier and, and had characters that were murkier, mm. weren't so absolute like, you know, like the characters in this film where you've got, you know, like the filmmaker that's so <laughs> over Denham. the top. <laughs> yeah, Carl Denham and, you know, Anne, who is such an overt, like, princess. So did damsel in distress. Damsel in distress. And, and, yeah. You know, obviously John... Was it John Driscoll who's just yes. like the most manly man, man, um, <laughs> that can man, and um, it ends up being quite difficult to consume from that point of view. Mm. Um, not even touching on the the cultural tribal aspect. There's, there's a lot of that, and I, I would like to talk about that because it, it does skirt the line of how much of this was like intentional social commentary. It seems like none of it was intentional. It was just blatantly sexist and racist <laughs> because of the attitudes of the times. Mm. However, I do think they do kind of lean into really the two big themes of this film. I think the very clear main film, and and, and it happens with the with the opening text, and it happens with Carl's like constant rambling, and mm. I mean he's an he's an opportunist who almost turns into a colonist. <laughs> Even has a line, no white man has ever seen this island. That that whole uh, aspect of it. But the one that throws in your face is the idea of, you know, the beast becoming soft, forgetting its wisdom, and ultimately, you know, losing its its power and its might due to love. And of mm. course, you know, it was beauty that killed the beast, a very famous line uh, at the end of both this film and the 2005 version. You know, love tames the beast, so to speak. But I think the more interesting theme, again, this idea of, of them almost being colonists, sort of um, mi very much mistreating the natives and just sort of stumbling into this dangerous environment mm. and the sensationalization of of Kong in a time where you're right, this was created during the Depression. And it's interesting you haven't seen the 2005 film because that film is actually surprisingly meta about that. So it also takes place in the 30s, but they very much spend like the first hour really it's a much longer film it's well over three hours 
the Peter Jackson yes. version, and spends way more of its runtime establishing its characters, giving them better motivations. We meet Anne for like, we get at least 15 minutes of screen time with Anne before she tries to steal the apple. And it really goes to show like the dire straight she's into the point where she does have to steal an apple because she's legitimately that hungry because she hasn't been paid in several weeks because of the Depression era. Mm. And all of these people that are actors and directors and general showmen really trying to find that thing that they're going to sensationalize and show the world and, and you know become uh, become successful in their yeah, respective fields. Well. Exactly. And and this original film, again, I don't want to compare it too much, but this film really you know skirts over a lot of those themes and ideas that kind of just gets you onto the boat as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, you know, with the crew and, and your actors and, and that. Yeah, because it, it almost got drawn into the, the animation side, the selling of Kong. Exactly, yeah. Um, I've really wanted to show those visual effects. Whereas, like... But we're saying these conventional storytelling, the backstory, the context, uh, all of the stuff that probably even at the time they were like, oh, that's the boring stuff. No one wants to see that. Yeah. um, This film very much feels that way. It's an adventure film that's a big spectacle with lots of visual effects. mm. And we we just got to to blast through that. And I remember reading something about the directors, Meryn C. Cooper and Ernest B. uh, Shodzak. And... It seemed very much like the all the dialogue about like oh we got to throw a chicken there, you know um, what's the line that's in here I got you know oh the public the public have to see a beautiful face like they basically threw that in there because that was the attitude they had about making the movie yeah it was very much one to one attitude and again I'm always shocked by going back to 2005 how much they make fun of that because not only are they establishing the opening but when they get on the boat they're filming part of the movie on the boat with the characters and they literally are saying the exact same lines that the characters in this film are saying, but they're making fun of it. They record the scene and then they sort of like, oh, I didn't really like that dialogue. You know, it's, they're kind of making fun of how sexist the whole mm. original film was. <laughs> unintentionally. It's pretty cringe. I know. It's So I really, I really urge you to watch the 2005 version when you can. Yeah, because definitely rewatching this just makes me want to, even if it's three hours... I mean, that was the height of Pete Jackson, uh, Peter Jackson, too. Oh, like, absolutely. You know, coming off the back of Lord of the Rings, he went straight into King Kong. And that was always, like, his dream to always remake King Kong. He loves the film, but he wasn't above making fun of some of yeah. the uh, the, the old age of it all. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but, like, let's talk about these characters. You've got Carl Denham, and, again, he's given a lot more backstory in the newer film, but you look at this one... He's, he, I mean, he's kind of a horrible person but in so many ways. He's a blatantly horrible person. He's exploitive. <laughs> he's uh, he manipulative. He's self-serving. He's honestly, and, and yet embodies such normalized values, like you said at the time, his, his mm. perceptions of colony, colonialism. Yeah. And, um, the natives and even how he sees Kong as a, a resource of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I don't think the film's shying away from him being um, a good person, but it feels so overt that it almost feels like the film's message had to be that. Yeah, in a sense, and I know the directors have kind of gone on record saying we just wanted to make a fun adventure film, but the, if they're like the if that director is the personification of them as directors, they don't come off very well in this movie. No. and like you said, they they're very much sensationalist and capitalist and they they endanger so many people by bringing this giant ape this giant dangerous angry ape to new york where he could potentially like kill many hundreds of people <laughs> destroy buildings and bridges and 
Mm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. But even then, like I love the visual juxtaposition between the the slimy, dangerous creatures of the jungle with the glamorous New York theater stage. It's kind of a perfect three act structure in terms of the locations, where we start on New York and then enter the boat, and then the second act we're on the island, and the third act we're back in New York. It's kind of a perfect structure from that standpoint. Yeah, I've never honestly gravitated towards this film, mm. and I think it's because of the time and I'm it's I've never been I I can appreciate the the nuances and the, the animation aspects and the fact that they've used a, a tiger roar and a lion roar to and slowed it down to create like a, a distinct Kong roar right but, um, the I've, technical aspects of the, of the film. Are, are the are the strengths I, I like you said I, you were talking about the composer in the, the first half of the show oh my god the the that's amazing like, yeah. the score is fantastic um and it's even the subtlety it's not even just like the fact that it's like this big scope of orchestral score something that you know you, you go to a, a cinema in 1933 it's very rare that you're going to get that it's even like the subtleties and i love i love the little musical sequence a bit of this foreboding part of the score where mm. the um i guess like the um the leader the tribal leader who's like i guess organizing the dance he stops everyone because he sees you know carl and his team ahead and as he's walking down the footsteps the music is sort of adjusting its beat to the speed of his footsteps as it each as it hits each step yes and it's like even just like those subtle moments there of the music really being and its pacing really being dictated by the performances and the picture in the film and one review at the time actually noted this i think it was a youtube comment um, where they said this is basically a symphony with moving images, mm. which I, I mean, I I understand the comparison because it was so novel at the time. I really think the only thing you could ever describe as a symphony with pictures is Koi and Scotsy, which we did many many episodes ago. But for me, it was actually shocking not only how good the score is, but how much it services the picture. So absolutely novel and yeah. incredible for the time. Still and, incredible. It's, and it's definitely where the, the film's at its best. That whole scene when they're walking down the stairs and they're having that, like, that's mm. that's peak right yeah. there. That's peak. I, I, I think what I struggle with, and we talked about it um, all the way back on All Quiet on the Western Front's 2022 version of the film. Yes. Um, and we both kind of were talking about how great the 1930 film was. Um, and we both sort of sat there and came to this decision because I'm, I'm sitting here trying to defend this film. Oh, well, the talkies had only just come out and people were right. still working on developing good characters. But then we watch a film like that that was incredibly thought-provoking. Yeah, sure, yeah. the characters are definitely monologuing a little bit and they're being a little too overt with their emotions and there's still tweaks there. But yes. the essence of, of characters and performances were, were fantastic in that film. and. Mm. Like you said, perhaps this was just a film that just wanted to be an adventure film and didn't really care. Often the perspectives are just that of the time and they're not... And perhaps given the fact this film came out in the midst of a, of a Great Depression, mm. um, maybe the, the value was just trying to give people something to be entertained by yeah. um, over something thought-provoking. Sure. And it speaks. I mean, it, you look at it, it grossed five, six million dollars off a $60,000 budget, which you know, adjusted for inflation is insane. The yeah. People who didn't have a lot of money at the time were willing to give up their money to go see this film. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's even the self-commentary for the, the person that walks into the theatre at the end of the film 
to see you know the eighth wonder of the world it's like mm. i paid 20 bucks for this ticket which is you know probably close to 400 usd nowadays and you're right in a depression yeah so it's interesting for me because so much of my takeaway from this film in terms of like the thematics and the character work are really things that were much more clearly illustrated in the 2005 film and are sort of brushed over in this one and i think that you're right i think they're brushed over because the directors were more interested in making just an entertaining film that could scare and delight and frighten people like i said scare and delight very or scare Mm. and fright it's the same thing but you get my point. And to give an audience that experience, uh, something that's not necessarily as thought-provoking as, uh, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front, which you right, came out a few, at least three years earlier from memory. So it was, it's not like they came out on the same weekend. <laughs> there, was, mm. there was time to watch and analyze. But And the other thing as well is you got RKO pictures that were nearly in bankruptcy when they produced this film. So it's it's not even just like the adventurous aspect of the film or the fact that King Kong's such an anonymous like monster uh, character in the zeitgeist even today. We're still getting movies Godzilla vs. Kong just a couple of years ago, and I think they're making more. Um, but this also, this film saved the company. And you're right, it goes back to the its profits. This one made a huge impact. Mm. And you put it in the echelons of like, Frankenstein and the Invisible Man, I think, also came out in 1933. So you're comparing them to other monster films, which don't have the depth of something like, you know, an anti-war film in the early 30s, but have that that aura about them where it can delight and fright its audience and make money. Yeah. So there's a lot of aspects of this film that, that sort of explain why it's had the legacy that it's had. Um, now, you talk about trying to give this film as many passes as you can. Yes. <laughs> Especially with all of the insensitive nature of it and yes, stuff. Exactly. Um I mean, I have to ask you. Yes. Obviously now revisiting the film mm. so long after. And then you've you've spoken quite a bit about the two thousand five film. Would you say someone is this a film we have to watch in our lifetime now, or do we just have to watch scenes from the film? Mm. I think there are def. I think because the. F- I mean, I I'm obviously. I mean, we were talking earlier about you know the whole fifteen. Give a film fifteen minutes mm-hmm. and then a yay or nay, and I generally try and stray away from that. I I like to see things in its complete process. So for me, there's that element of it, and the film is not overly long. If you find the complete no. cut, it's a hundred minutes. I think I think there was a um an overture at the start, so you know you cut that out. It's even shorter. Um. For me, I think this is abs- if you're a film connoisseur and you want to be a filmmaker and you're you're enamored by these monster characters and especially mm-hmm. the visual effects because these are so advanced and we can talk more about them yep. um, specifically in a moment. I think for that reason, absolutely, it's worth watching the original King Kong. But in terms of its themes, like I said, I feel like they're all illustrated so much better in the 2005 film. It's so much more clear about its meta commentary on, on the dialogue in this film the fact that it takes place during a depression and how that motivates so many of the characters to do what the things they do in this film. Um, and the whole, yeah, the sensationalization, the capitalism, the colonism, like all of those themes, I think are also better explored in the Peter Jackson film and slightly less uh, <laughs> offensive, I suppose is a good way to put it. But twice as long. <laughs> but twice as long, that is true. But then again, I, I was watching it, 
I watched it as a kid and I, I was watching it again yesterday in my mid-twenties and it does, it flows really well. Actually, don't think it's very long at all. So I think that's my answer to that question. If you're mm. if you're fascinated by the time period and the the uh, the progression of film techniques and filmmaking, absolutely watch the original. If you're more interested in just King Kong as a character and the themes of the story, I think the 2005 version will serve you perfectly fine, if not better than this film. Now let's talk a bit about you know I'm praising these visual effects and let's talk a bit more about them because the other thing I love about them is these extended wide shots and the use of scaling. And even before we meet King Kong, which is, what, like 47 minutes <laughs> into the film, yep. it takes a while to see him for the first time. We're given examples of these great um, sets and examples of, of scaling. I love the giant uh, doors, the, the gate that leads you into the island, and the fact that we get this long, wide shot of all the natives slowly closing this door and then lift, hoisting up the big plank of wood that's going to sort of um, you know secure it in place. And I just love how long these these takes are. Because, again, you think of something like Casablanca, which we only did last week. You know, there's no epic, you know, wide angles of, like, this entire city. I mean, there's establishing shots and things like that. But you think a lot about that film's cinematography is just being inside Rick's club. Mm. And, like, great use of lighting and shadows and, and framing. But in terms of scale, for a film... 90 years old again it's like i want to preface it's just incredible i also love the use of um like dimension and the other thing they would do is say for example there's a scene when it's like a 2d image of someone being chased by a dinosaur but they would just put like the silhouette of a of a tree to the left of frame and it's just little decisions like that that just create that extra depth something that even disney animations were struggling with at the time i mean the multiplane was created in 1933 but even something like Snow White in, in 39, it just mm. looks like we're zooming into a static photograph. And it, I think it's Pinocchio that finally gives us the dimension and depth where the, the hills and the houses and the sun and the sky are all moving towards the camera at different perspectives. And this film, while combining live action and stop motion animation, which is fantastic, stop motion animation, by the way, um, I love the realism of it because of the hairs. You can see the hairs and the fur of King Kong. It's just so imperfect yeah. that it gives it that unique look. I mean, we talked about that with the Pinocchio, Del Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. But, yeah, I mean, it, this is this film is accomplishing things that other giants like Disney couldn't accomplish for another 10 years. And, I again, I think that's what's so important about this film. Was there a particular shot or effect that you took away from that, that really blew you away or you thought was just... I think the the fight with the dinosaurs mm. is pretty pretty impressive. Is that use of it looks almost claymat like the claymation esque. It's yes. really impressive. Um, I like uh, even the latter parts. You know, when we get some more close ups of Anne looking at Kong mm. um, and those sort of things. It's quite interesting because this uh, it's kind of great that you've now got to see both because you've got to have that compare and contrast. Almost yep. like we're having that same conversation with All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm. I think that that is really valuable because we can see how much character and backstory and subtext is so important to how we perceive the the contemporary cinema. Yeah. And a lot of that doesn't quite exist in this film or mm. it doesn't exist in this film. I mm. mean, like you're saying, Carl is so on the surface. There's no... Everything he says, yeah. he does. There's, there's no, no ambiguity or... or 
um, subtext. You know, we, we spent the first half you, of the show talking about people that have nothing but subtext, yeah. like you know, characters <laughs> that are always got things cooking under the surface. Yes, enter scenes. You know, you you look at the way um, Tarantino's. Uh, you know, I watched. There was a brief thing that came, not to be too tangential, but yeah, there's a brief scene where he's talking about how Travolta and uh, Thurman are doing the dance in, in oh, Pulp yeah. Fiction, and then he's talking about the motivations of that dance. And yeah, I find that that's just crazy to think about, like yeah. having subtext in the moment. Whereas here, it's like everyone's every- just saying what they think. Yeah, and there's yeah, there's no. Which obviously, you know, you, when you're given nearly three hours, it's and and this is the evolution of cinema. It's like Jackson gave all of those moments. Kong became so much more of a character, not just an animal with yeah. the 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 empathy, uh, the audience empathy of like a dog, basically. Yeah, a, a, yeah. A big large rabbit animal. You know, we don't get the moments of of true uh, love and sacrifice connections mm. between Kong and Anne because. Well, the film just doesn't allow that. You know, there's only that one kind of sequence where we see. I mean, obviously Kong protects Anne. Yes. Um, in the earlier parts of the film, but it doesn't feel as, as like it's it more. It just feels, feels like primal. An, yes, it feels like an animal's more. The, the, Kong is as fascinated with Anne in in the in the beauty and and it's mm. just succumbing to just humphrey bogart last <laughs> week it's the same sort of effect yeah just, exactly um well even the human relationships where the relationship between Anne and and john driscoll which is interesting because i think his name is jack driscoll in the new film it's a weird little tiny change mm. they did um that their relationship with this film is just so overt and kind of uncomfortable i mean again it's just like that a uh, overt omission of love with when it's it just feels so like they're just looking at each other <laughs> like what about the personality and the conversations they've been having have caused them to fall in love and sure it's a different time period but like even her response to that is like oh i thought you hated women like <laughs> it's like yeah how is that like a sexy undertonal response when you look at you got adrian brody who's playing uh driscoll in the in the newer film and it's like and naomi watts and it's like their chemistry is so much more like clear and sexual and underlined with like they're having these awkward glances at each other again i don't want to compare it too much to the new i want to talk about this in isolation but you're right like in terms of the emotional attachment to its characters and the relationship between not only Anne and driscoll but Anne and con it's just not quite the same and that that's why this film really is carried by its visual effects and and to your point about maybe the con and, and dinosaur fights being like the real the highlights. Mm. What I love about those specific, and this is where I would give the film credit from like a direction point of view, is that I think what makes those fights so good is that they're always from the context of the vulnerable humans. Every, almost every single shot where con and the T-Rex are like wrestling ends in the frame. In the, the tiny speck in the frame, either she's stuck on the tree or she's hiding under hiding underneath like the broken branch thing at the bottom of the frame, but either way, she's always there and it's always reminding us of her vulnerability and the overall scale of these. Cause if it's just the two puppets or, you know, like claymation figures just fighting on their own. Yeah. It's very quick to lose that perspective of like how big and roaring and destructive these creatures are, but they always frame it from the, with, with at least one human in the frame to always have that compare and contrast mm. to their size. 
So I actually thought that was what was really impressive about those fights, as well as the the actual animation. Yeah. Um, and in speaking of animation, I love as well with Kong. You think about this, like the animators, they must have had a lot of agency. And sure, sure, they had to be really specific about matching the timing of the live action footage with the stop motion. They probably, you know, down to the amount of frames per second within the second. They had mm. to get it like dead on correct, otherwise it was gonna fail miserably. But I'm sure they had a lot of agency in like when Kong's just. His motive, his animation is not clearly motivated at all times, and what I mean by that is, when we see him animated, it's not like he's he grabs Anne and then we cut. It's like no, he's sitting around for 30, 40 seconds before he grabs Anne. So like he's pacing and he's rocking and he he's chest pounding. You have to create a lot of personality in those mm. animations. And I love. I would love to think the the animators had the agency to do that, and I just wanted to point that out because that's such an incredible detail in terms of. You can study apes and see how they move and animate, but you need to give Kong that personality that does help sort of ground him from just being this big hulking monster. Yeah. So I, I wanted to give a shout out to all of those aspects as well. I find it interesting that you know, obviously, you would you would have to say Denim is is he the protagonist of the film? I mean, technically, I guess. Mm. I mean, it's he. He's the yeah. one who's subjected to an arc. He gets the will. first and last scene. Um, he also has that last line, which sort of, I mean, is a loose way of being like, "Oh, I exploited nature. Look at me. I'm <laughs> such a silly person." Um, I guess he's technically, or at least he's the vessel in which we see that exploitation of of nature yep. and and capitalism ruining over us even back in the 1930s and um yeah, well even even that last line is sort of and you I know this hate is that last line well what's funny Isn't i mean it? it's an iconic line but what <laughs> no, i think about it is it almost feels like a deflection because he'd been saying the whole film like i'm starting to f- I see a theme here you know beauty tames the beast and yada 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 but what that ignores is, like you said earlier, Kong is constantly protecting Anne against all these dinosaurs and these snake-like creatures throughout mm. the whole film. He's very protective of her. And yet he still reigns king and, and triumphs in all of these battles. It's when he's in a different environment, in a Western, you know, civilized, skyscraper-filled environment, mm. is when he finally loses. So to me, that feels like a deflection because, like, well, Beauty, I don't think Beauty killed the, the beast at all. I think it was you taking him out of his natural habitat. Yes. Yeah, it is 100% a deflection. And it's that so, you know, it comes back to the, the sexism and, the, yes. and the, the, the where it's, oh, yes, women kill all things that are good <laughs> with their looks. The only thing that would have made that line better is beauty killed the beast. Arrest her. <laughs> Don't arrest me. Yeah. It's, it can be tough to watch that and go. It's like her, like, putting her out to as bait. And then you just sort of like, yeah. <laughs> how many times are I going to watch this film? And it's, you know, it's the worst part is like, you know, you're talking about, oh, well, if you're a film lover, you have to watch these films. I 100% sure. agree. There is an extent. It's also like being like, oh, well, you want to need, you need to watch the first ever feature film. <laughs> That's Birth of a Nation. Like, <laughs> I don't want to go near that film. <laughs> Even though it's the first feature film ever, I, I don't think I could sit there and watch that. It was like watching Gone with the Wind. It was yeah. honestly this time last year we're talking about Gone with the Wind. And I just I can't fathom a film in which we 
feel we follow a nearly four hour journey where yeah. we're, we're trying to sympathize with those who are fighting for slavery like yeah, yeah it's very very hard and then of course that film's the same thing it's got a male a- a protagonist who is obsessed with a woman who basically just wears them down despite the fact that there's no natural chemistry or anything mm. the birth of the femme fatale was like the greatest <laughs> thing in film because at least they had complexity and nuance yeah. and character but it's funny because, like, we yeah, we talk about. I mean, this is the sort of polar opposite discussions between, especially like Gone with the Wind, Birth of Nation, compared to something like Casablanca, which we love because it was on the right side of history. And it, and it's not to say that like, oh, we should only judge a film based on like which side of history they mm. guessed would be the correct one. I mean, that's part of film being a time capsule is like we get to see those different perspectives. Um, but for King Kong in particular, I just think it's so. What's the word? Like, it wasn't done with malignant intent. I can kind of sense that, and that can almost make you argue that these sexist, racist, colonist characters, it's kind of the point of the story, is that they are those things, and we're not necessarily meant to be rooting Mm. for them. Although maybe at the time, we were just meant to be scared of the beast. So it's an interesting discussion. I'm glad we're having on the show. I think it's a... I think without that, this film becomes infinitely less interesting <laughs> yes <laughs> without its visual effects and all that the wonderment of that yeah i think so your favorite sort of i guess standout visual effect would be the the, the t-rex and, and king kong fighting mm-hmm. mine would probably be and and it's so simple and it's so obvious and it's so fake but clever is when they shoot first off that shot of them shooting that first dinosaur down is is phenomenal mm-hmm. because they were clearly doing like a 2d animation of it going behind the bushes going from left to right and then right from left and it wasn't in a cutting with anyone's heads in the foreground of the shots it was like oh, okay that's that's where they've comped it that's where they drew that line the david lynch sort of edit so to speak or david uh, fincher i should say and then he charges them and he's like as he charges the people he's coming closer to the camera he's growing in size i was en- en- enamored by that i was like wow that's impressive and then it's immediately followed by a shot where they're meant to be walking around the dead dinosaur and they're just clearly walking against the screen. <laughs> That's projecting the data. Yeah, and they're doing that little animation. Um, but hey, I, I, you know, kudos to them for, for doing the work to sort of match the animations yeah. between those camera movements and the performers walking and all of that stuff. Do you have anything else to add, Jake? I have one question for you, Zeke, Ooh. before we get into the highlight scene. Do you think the plane sequence at the end, we didn't even talk about it. That's such an iconic yes. image. I think them by planes. That's it, and and them even. Um, I think the director's even admitting that was that was like their first image of the film, and they almost worked backwards story wise to get to the end of that image. Um, do you think that was inspired by the films of Howard Hughes at the time, or the plane sequences and the mm. aerial combat? I'd say it'd be a fair fair bet. That it'd was a fair f- bet. I mean, yeah. you, a lot of these filmmakers are in the World War. Yeah. So you know the Great War. So. That's definitely going to have correlation there, and mm. and like you said, it's that like such an iconic shot that I can totally see how a film was constructed around that aspect. That getting sequence, to that aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I will say you are you hit the nail on the head, Z, because Marion C. Cooper, the, one of the directors, indeed was a fighter pilot and explorer, <laughs> and that's indeed where that came from. Not necessarily Howard Hughes Shadow, although that's what I assumed when I first watched the film, Zeke. 
What is your highlight scene for King Kong? Um, so I obviously watched this film we were talking about um, way back in my undergraduate degree, and I, I still yes. hold suit to that. We watched it for its compo- you know, compositions. The sound course. Sound, yeah, it's soundtrack, because it, we watched it before sound. And it is that step sequence um, using that ultra li- like ultra-wide shot and mm. having them moving down the stairs. And a, a choreographed sequence really shows the power that the soundtrack has. It, I compare it to what Goldsmith would go on to do um, with the Apes films. and um, Oh, that's a really good and, comparison. Uh, yeah. Alien, uh, where... Exotic Land. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and what he would go on to go do with that. I know he had great influences from films like Kong, especially with his Apes films, so Planet of the Apes films. So um, for that reason alone, that'll get my highlights. And Jake, Excellent. what about you? Um, yeah, mine has to be... And this was very difficult to decide. We can talk about the ending. We can talk about all these different visual effects moments. Um, I think for me, it would probably have to be the scene just after she... I mean, that scene is obviously iconic when she's initially kidnapped by Cons. First time we meet him, uh, the character, the monster, the beast, the ape, the ape wonder of the world. But it's immediately after that when all the guys rush in and they sort of break through the gate. And it's it's the collection of interactions they have with the dinosaurs and... And for me, that was just where I was just so blown away by the the use of all the visual effects and just like how long these um, big action scenes were, but also how immediately the stakes were raised and the fact that several key characters just start getting eaten off or crushed or drowned or just vicious deaths. <laughs> mm. And I, I, I got to say, I loved it. I love seeing people die gruesomely and screaming. Excellent. And here I am, just quoting Jerry Goldsmith, being like, ah, I love the origins of that primal soundtrack. Um, uh, yeah, well, King Kong is currently out in wide release. You can find a version of it on YouTube. Yeah, you do have to buy it. You can't even rent it. You have to buy it. Or get a VPN, then you can rent it. There's also a $5 DVD at JB Hi-Fi, so... Just go get it from JB Hi-Fi. Just get it from JB. Just, just archive that. Archive yeah. the bad boy. Have the lovely wall like what Jake's got here. I know. For all these delicious Blu-rays. They're doing the sale now, JB. I think two for one sale. Excellent. So I should, I should two really, for one DVDs. I think so. So Ooh. I should jump on that. That's what Andy. Andy was sending me a bunch of photographs. Jeez. So I should look into that. On that. Speaking of wide release mm. and streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? It's quite spread out this week, i got to say. Uh, you got A Beautiful Life coming to Netflix. It's easy, a young fisherman with an extraordinary voice to get the chance of a lifetime when a high-profile music manager discovers him at a party. Yeah, a Beautiful Life. That It sounds like the name of another movie that uh, probably, mm. is probably way, 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 way better than what I just <laughs> described there. <laughs> You've also got Missed Connections, which sees a hopeless romantic turn to an app to seek out a man she just met. Ooh, super specific. I love it. Uh, coming to stand, you got the whale. Very exciting. There we go. There you go. Uh, go, get to go, watch go check it out. Coming to Prime Video, you got Bones and All, which we talked about. It was episode like two oh two, I want to say, two oh three. It was around that era. You can listen to our thoughts on that. You got all four of the Indiana Jones films coming to Disney Plus this week. Very exciting. If you're looking forward to the the latest one, despite what Cards are saying, they can be a bit snobby. You know, if you're still holding out hope for a good indie film. They can be snobby, so maybe, maybe that you know, we'll see. I guess. I happen to believe what they say about that film. 
<laughs> but, I, I probably do too, especially after Crystal Skull. Yeah, I, I don't think it... I actually I read a great review where it was basically like, with Crystal Skull, it was a terrible movie, but at least it ended like on a great note for Indy as a character to like, like, like a happy note for his yeah. character. And then this one is just bad and also not ends on a happy note for him. <laughs> I'm like, oh boy, we shall see. Uh, coming to binge this week, you've got the Rayo Children Return, which I think came to cinemas a few months ago. So okay. there you go. Uh, a good person, apparently. That was really quick. With Florence Pugh and Morgan Freeman. That really was. That was really good. The Zach Braff directed dropped, film. Yeah, dropped, I think we were talking about going to see it. I know. Not that long ago. Uh, so uh, I, I put apparently in there. That just sounds really quick. But hey, if it's on binge this time next week, then then you can thank me. Also coming to binge, you've got Triangle of Sadness, which also comes to Paramount+. Plus. And in all honesty, we're probably just going to omit Paramount+. Plus. From this list, in addition to the eleven hundred films going soon, isn't it? I well, yeah, that's. I think that's the rumor. Yeah, it's costing them way too much money because it's a joke of a streaming service. <laughs> Ouch! Um, there you go. And finally, coming to cinemas, we have the Boogeyman, which is an adaptation of Stephen King's original work, and sees a terrifying supernatural entity prey on a grieving family after the loss of their mother. I hope people enjoyed that logline because I, I seriously reworded it because it was really messy, the one the one that was on Google. Uh, Bank of Dave is based on the true story of Dave Fishwick, a working-class man and self-made millionaire who fought to set up a community bank for the town's local businesses. It's weird to have self-made millionaire in what's meant to be like a feel-good <laughs> logline. Oh, dude's just helping his mates. Working class man slash self made billionaire. Fair enough. Kudos. That's like, that's like what Kendall wants to be. <laughs> there you go. Uh, sweet as an Australian coming of age road film about a troubled 16 year old indigenous girl from the remote Pilbara. That's exciting. Another little Aussie film for yeah, us. Yeah, a little bit different. I know. And finally, there's one more film coming to cinemas and Zeke. I think with the end of our countdown for the decades. 2023 i think now's a good time for us to return to the cinema to the i'm excited it's been a hot second since i've been at the cinema yeah what's the last one we went to i think dungeons and dragons to be honest oh, okay yeah maybe yeah um for me it was oh you know it would have been bo was afraid i reckon that was like i saw but are you air afraid as well for the next film that we're doing i'm extremely excited Ooh. about the next film we're doing and i imagine you are too zeke i certainly am but Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Got a minute? Oh! Look! Gwen, how did, how did she... How, how did you get... How have you been? Uh, it's a long story. Is this the room you grew up in? Uh, it, it is. But uh, my, my dorm room is very adult. Right. No, of course. Hey, are these your drawings? What? No, oh, no. good. <laughs> I missed you too. Okay. So, what are you doing here? I mean, I, I thought I'd never...
never see you again. Wanna get out of here? I'm grounded. Bummer. What? Is Spider-Man grounded? Uh, I mean, I... After reuniting with Gwen Stacy, Miles Morales, Brooklyn's full-time friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, is catapulted across the multiverse where he encounters a team of Spider-People charged with protecting its very existence. Again, I wanted to leave the logline there. I thought that was nice and vague. I think that's very good because I actually haven't watched the trailer to this. Oh, very good. What's the point in watching a trailer to something you are most definitely going to go watch? There you go. So, uh, there you go, Zeke. You are very, very keen to see this movie, it sounds like. I am. I mean, I think we all really enjoyed... The Spider-Verse film came very close to when this podcast first started. Yeah, I think it was just like a month or two. It was very much like a December 2018 flick we all caught, and then we started the podcast a month later. Yeah. Sort of in that, like, the favourite realm of, like, almost... And we just sort of settled on... Not settled, but, like... Private Life just ended up being, like, the number one that we picked. Yes. And I, I am immensely... I think that's a fantastic film for us to start with because it's not quite, you know, mm. a big Marvel spectacle. But it's it's kind of a nice sort of hidden gem indie film um, that we both very much loved. So it just missed the mark on there. But uh, we can obviously talk about both Spider-Verse movies uh, next week on this discussion as well as potentially our succession series finale spoiler talk so oh i'm excited to dive into that show mm, we'll give you lots of leeway listeners to yes. avoid the spoilers if you must yeah but until then thank you for joining us for the cinema shot show podcast i was zeke i was jake we'll catch you next week with spider-verse uh, so spider-man across the spider-verse yes <laughs>